If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Getting your team up to date on the latest skills required for success is hard work, but you don't have to worry about it anymore. Jolt is an online training platform that helps professionals and organizations access up-to-date training from practitioners at the top of their game. No more watching e-learning videos that are not interactive and may contain obsolete information where you access them. Each Jolt training is done live via interactive Skype or webinar and the trainers are both practitioners and thought leaders in your field. So you get the latest information that can change your business at the right time. Visit jolt.us and find out how you can start getting the right training for your team today. That's www.jolt.us. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. That's www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey guys, I have a great show today. I'm speaking with Dr. Linda Sharkey. Linda is widely recognized as one of the world's preeminent thought leaders on global leadership development. She started her career in the corporate world and she became one of the founding members of the Marshall Goldsmith Group, a premier executive coaching organization that helps companies show measurable improvements in leadership development metrics. In addition to working with the Marshall Goldsmith Group, Linda runs her own company where she helps top-level organizations improve their businesses and their processes in terms of working with millennials and determining what transformational businesses should be like in the future. She's the author of a new book, The Future-Proof Workplace, Six Strategies to Accelerate Talent Development, reshape your culture and succeed with purpose. I'm pleased to have Linda on the show. Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Chi. I appreciate it. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk with you and to talk about the book. Thank you. So Linda, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, well, um, I've worked for a lot of years, more than uh, I want to say, mostly in corporate America. Um, I've done talent, leadership, organization development, uh, culture transformation in some of the best companies in the world, GE, HP, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, just to name a few. And um, I've done also work in the private sector as well as the public sector, um, working in the Cuomo administration for a period of time. I have a Ph.D. in organization development, and I've written many, many articles and books on leadership, talent, and cultural transformation, and I have my own consulting practice now, which I love. Great. So, Linda, while you were working in corporate America, what was your experience like working for big companies like GEHB and then the Como administration? And then why did you decide to launch your own consulting practice? Well, um, you know, my experience was that corporate cultures vary a lot. And um, views on leadership and leader behaviors uh, is uh, varies a lot from organization to organization. And that's why I decided to focus in on corporate culture. Because if you don't have a healthy, constructive corporate culture, your employees are not uh, engaged. Uh, your output is not as good as it could be. Your profits are not as good as they should be. And your customers typically are not as happy as they should be. So I learned that um, corporate culture and leadership behavior was essential and that what leaders do does drive the type of culture that you have within an organization, both in the public sector and in the private sector. Oh, that's, that sounds great. And then you transitioned from, you said, corporate GEHP to government correct working in the Cuomo administration what was the difference when you got to working for the government 
Well, it was it was quite the opposite. Actually, I was working in the Cuomo administration oh, first, okay. um, and then uh, got tapped to. Um, I was leading a public-private uh, consortium between the Cuomo administration and the big corporations in New York, IBM, American Express, um, and I got tapped by them to come join um, their businesses to help them in uh, quality and uh, culture transformation. This was many years ago. And I would say the big difference is probably, some people would see this as negative, I see this as positive, but at the pace at which government um, changes mm. versus the pace at which business changes. And there's a rationale and a reason for that. Government changes slowly because it's impacting the lives of so many people. Um, and you really need to weigh the unintended consequences of any decision that you make. Um, government tends to operate much more from a constitutional, a rule of law perspective. And business, while it's, if it's a private business, it's not held to very many standards at all, like the Trump organization. I mean, that's a private company and mm -hmm. that, that doesn't get uh, the scrutiny that a public company would get. If you're a public company, you do have uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, you do have laws that you have to follow, um, you have labor laws that you have to follow, etc. cetera. Um, but it can move much more quickly. And the reason it can move much more quickly is because often what it is doing is related to shareholder value, mm. related to um, a product or service, and it's not necessarily related to the greater good of a society. So there's there's a big difference. You want government to move more slowly because they're making decisions that are really going to affect people's people's lives. Yeah. And while big business does that as well, it doesn't quite have the same uh, overall impact that a good government or a poor government can have on a population. So that was my big insight. Mm. Although I complained about the slowness of government all the time. Yeah, I, I can imagine going from that type of organization to big businesses. But a lot of people also complain that, like, you haven't spent many years in corporate, that once you're in an organization, especially an organization as big as GE, it, it also mm -hmm. gets bureaucratic and things start getting slow. You know, in as much as they right. move faster than government, they still move slower than take, for example, a startup and this is where things are becoming different in the workplace today where most young people especially coming out of college and going to work want to work for startups that are changing the world moving rapidly companies that look and feel younger like a google or a facebook as opposed to working for ge so did you notice that the culture was also um, stifling while you were working for big companies before you now moved into consulting with uh, Marshall Goldsmith and then launching your own business? Uh, well, you know, the, the, you, you hit a bunch of things here. Um, first of all, big companies can be very nimble and they can be very fast. It all depends on the culture. Okay. GE happened to want to develop and did develop a quick uh, culture, a empowerment culture, uh, a trust the employees culture, um, at least where I was working when I was at the global level and I was at the, you know, more senior levels of the organization. But um, it tended to be a very decentralized, um, depending upon where you are, not highly bureaucratic organization. HP, on the other hand, was a very slow organization because its culture was one of high degree of participation. Mm. And therefore, many, many people had to weigh in who it was just not clear had any um, direct impact on the decision-making process, but they had did what you would call had to be socialized before they moved anything forward or changed anything. And that was a very slow culture and a very bureaucratic culture and a very go-along-to-get-along culture. Mm. And, you know, we all know what happened to HP, and, and um, it, it, it's now split into two businesses. It's, you know, clawing its way back into the front line. I, I don't mean to malign the company, but, you know, it, it, 
its culture was very different. Now, you can also go to a startup like Uber. Uh, let's be clear, Uber's only around for four years max, five maybe, mm. and already Uber has a toxic culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a culture of harassment. Mm-hmm. It's got a culture of uh, unethical behavior um, and regulatory controls that, you know, it's well advertised and publicized uh, around the world. I'm sure you've heard about it all over the place. Yeah. Um, so, It depends on, this is why corporate culture or organizational culture is so important important to me. If you don't get the culture right, you don't get the customers right, you don't get the employees right, you don't get the leadership right, and ultimately you don't get your product right. Um, So I work with a lot of Silicon Valley companies now who are looking at the Uber experience uh, and they're saying, we are startups, we want to be, you know, we want to be on the right side of the organizational culture equation. And how do we make sure that we have the right culture like Netflix? Now, I don't know if you have Netflix in uh, where you are. Yes, I have Netflix. I'm sure you have it when you're here <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. But I don't know if you have it in, in uh, West Africa where you are. Yeah. But, um, you know, Netflix has a fabulous culture mm-hmm. and a quick culture. And Netflix has reinvented itself at least five times since it's been around, which is about a little less than uh, 20 years. Yeah. And it moved from mailing uh, CDs or DVDs of movies to people's houses to now streaming video to now making video to now, you know, customizing video to parts of the world and, and tastes of different humankind. And it's quite incredible. Yeah. So... I don't think it's a function of big company, startup, little company, uh, public company, private company. I think it's a function of the kind of behaviors, attitudes, and values of the leaders um, that create the organization. It's a function of the behavior, attitude, and values of the leaders that creates the culture. Now, Correct. using that statement and listening to what you just said, what forms the basis of your new book, The Future-Proof Workplace? Because it seems like you experienced a lot of things, especially working as a consultant and working in big companies and sharing your insight as you just did so eloquently. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I'll tell you what it's inspired. I mean, I've been a student of leadership for the better part of my life, leadership, uh, culture, organizational change, quality. And... Let's face it, a lot of what we were doing in businesses were rooted in the industrial era and out of uh, an industrial mindset Mm -hmm. and a different view and mentality about humankind. You know, very clear, uh, Max Weber was uh, from the, you know, the early turn part of the century uh, building bureaucratic approaches, which, by the way, were not always negative. Actually, there were a lot of very positive things about that. But there was a more of a command and control style of leadership. Human resources was organized around how can we control people. There was a deep-seated belief that people, if not controlled, will do negative things. And, you know, in fact, that's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. People are very goal-focused. People uh, don't need constant uh, 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 watching over to make sure that they do the right things. What they need is guide rails. And they need purpose. And you said it before, a very clear and compelling purpose. And the rules have changed dramatically for the 21st century. The new workforce, over 45% of it is going to be millennials. And now we've got, uh, you know, the digital natives coming up the pike. And these are people that are highly educated, uh, much more experienced with technology, uh, were raised in a global world, probably have friends that they communicate with all over Uh, the world, they travel a lot more, are much more exposed to things and can get information quickly. And these are not people that are going to uh, uh, cotton quickly to um, a command and control style leadership or a toxic organizational culture. And that's why we wrote the book. So how do you, and plus our clients, uh, many global clients from around the world were saying, you know, the rules have got to change. We need help in figuring out what's excuse me, going to be right for our organization and how we have to morph from 20th century practices and beliefs into 21st century practices and beliefs. And that's why we wrote the book. 
And we did a lot of research for the book and really discovered that there were six factors that, um, you know, actually I would have to say seven factors, but we don't really cover it quite that way in the book, but that, that really need to be rethought and rejiggered to thrive in this environment. Cause we are in the digital uh, revolution. We are as yep. much impacted now as we were in the industrial revolution and the turn of the century. We are in another turn of the century and the world of work and the relationship of humankind to work is um, dramatically shifting. So you mentioned there are six factors, maybe even seven factors. And for me, just listening to that and based on my experience, I know that some of the things that are driving um, need for change in the 21st century is actually technology, immigration, and those topics have been covered ad nauseum. So what are these six factors that you and your co-author discovered and wrote about that are so impactful to the way we need to start thinking about work in the future? Right. Well, you know, we start with uh, with that, actually, uh, Chi. The story is not about globalization. It's not about technology, and it's not about demographic shifts. Frankly, since man has been around, we've had demographic shifts. Since man has been around, we've had technological advances. Since man has been around, we've been working on creating a global world. How do you think people got from... Uh, you know, from Siberia over to uh, the, the the America's continent. How do you think uh, the Vikings got to the U.S.? I mean, it's always been uh, the, the, the Silk Route, the global trade. It's mm-hmm. always been there. The difference today is the dizzying speed with which this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States was, in 1965, it was, 100, it was 90% white. In now, in 2017, it's trending 38% uh, multicolored. And that trend is going to continue, and it's going to continue around the world. And it doesn't mean that there are more multicolored people in the world. There have always been. But now it's integrating a lot faster. And people have immigrants for a whole variety of reasons, social reasons, political reasons, business reasons. Business has driven a lot of this because global companies are moving people all over the world. Um, But it's that speed with which people have got to deal with differences that's causing them to uh, react to change in a very visceral way. So the book is not about those things. Those things are here. They've always been here. It's the speed. So there are six factors with an added seventh that you really have to look at. One is you can't have a command and control leadership, and you can't have a leadership that is really about greed. If you're command and control and you're really about the bottom line dollar and profit and that's all you care about, uh, you're in a tsunami to fail. Um, You've got to have a culture. That's not uniform. It's not driven uh, by like the old IBMs uh, of the world, but it's got to be a values-driven culture, a culture that operates against very clear corporate values that are personally embedded into the DNA of the company. And by that, I mean it's embedded into the behaviors of the leaders, the behaviors that are rewarded, the behaviors of the the workforce in general, and the decision-making process. You know, you pull companies, you, you scratch the surface of a lot of companies have values these days. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look at companies like uh, Wells Fargo. It may not relate to people in um, West Africa, but I'm sure it relates to you. You know, who were 5,300 people were setting up credit card accounts, bogus credit card accounts. And, you know, this was highly illegal. Yeah. And people did it. And they did it because the culture was more about profit than it was about customer care, which is, of course, one of their values. Mm-hmm. Um, United Airlines, dragging that guy off that airline. Oh, yeah, I mean, that was about uh, the profit and making the schedule work as opposed to really dealing with the customer. So all of these things come to light a lot faster today than they did before. Yeah. And, you know, culture and values could hide the real 
propensity towards profit at all cost in the past, but it can't anymore. It can't anymore. Purpose, I talked about this before. Previous organization organizing principles were mission, vision, and shareholder value. Uh, and sure, you have to make profit, and don't get me wrong. Every business has got to make money or it's not going to be in business, but it's how you make the money. And, you know, you'd go into companies and you'd see these mission statements and you'd see these vision statements, and they all look the same, and the values are all the same, and we're collaborative, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they're very and hollow and empty, and they're just on the wall doing nothing. Exactly right. And they don't live by them. They don't believe in them. People can't even repeat them. But purpose is a compelling social contract and it has social impact. And you said it yourself, millennials want to make a difference. And I was just with uh, the, the leadership team of HCSC, it's a healthcare organization in the US, and their purpose is walking with you in sickness and in health. You know, now that, that, that compels me. It's not, their purpose is not selling insurance. Mm -hmm. Their purpose is making sure that you're supported when you're healthy, and you're supported when you're not healthy so that you can get what you need. <coughs> Excuse me. Those are big differences. And rather than shareholder value, these companies of the future and today are driven by customer value, mm. by customer value. And if you have those things, a strong and compelling purpose with clear values that everybody lives and a clear understanding of your customer relationship, you will have shareholder value and you will make better profits. In fact, the research is starting to, to, to show that. The next one is building relationships. Before we used to have, you know, teams and I was the boss and, you know, everybody else worked for me and we were part of the team and the team's job was to make me as the boss look good and make the company look good. But today it's about building relationships across boundaries, across borders, um, pulling pods of people together to innovate. Uh, it's more about matrix. It's more about clearing the way uh, for great groups of people to get together and solve big, hairy problems. And the leader's role in this is to make that happen and to support the teams, not to be, I'm the boss and you're my team. It's not about them. And I think diversity and inclusion is going to be a big part. Um, you're not going to be able to survive if you don't have an inclusive culture if you can't value people from a variety of different perspectives. And I'm just not talking the obvious perspectives like differences in religion and differences in, you know, skin color and, and eyes and those kinds of things. I'm talking about difference in beliefs, uh, differences in, in thought process, differences in cult country cultures, um, all sorts of things. But the, here's one thing you can take to the bank, and I have a lot of research on this that people, no matter where in the world they live and work, they want the same things for their family and they want the same things out of their work environment. Mm -hmm. They want to be treated fairly. They want to be respected. They want to work on something that's important and they want to take care of their family. And they want to make a, a, a fair and decent living. It may look different in Japan than it looks in Russia, but you scratched... You, 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 you pull back the onion to the core and people do have a lot of common values around the world and we need to build on those, not pull them apart. And obviously the final one is technology. Before we used to be about process improvement. Now, really, we're about fact-based decision-making. We're about uh, robots. We're about automation. We're about uh, augmented reality. And you got to get comfortable with that. If you're still struggling... Um, with the technology of the mm -hmm. 20th century, you know, resisting technological change is futile. And then the final piece that I always say is really sort of the seventh tangential, but everybody, companies have to figure out how they're going to develop people, how you organize that work to deliver value to your customers, and what your human relation practices are going to be, because the ones, the human resource practices from the past just don't work anymore and have got to be rethought. So there you go. That's the, those are the six plus one factors that we think and we know companies really need to focus on to survive this tsunami of technological change, of globalization and massive dem demographic shifts. 
That's great, Linda. Man, you really covered a lot in those seven uh, subtopics. So let me just start pulling just one or two so that you can do a deep dive on them and then we move forward. So the, the one of the last things you mentioned is, is in terms of technology now with things like AI, self-driving cars, advances in machine learning and all that. I envision a world where in the next five years, many people are going to be out of jobs if they're not retooling and retraining to prepare for what I'm going to call future jobs, jobs that don't yet exist, but will need to exist because of these um, new changes in technology. So so how can people start um, preparing in terms of education and learning and getting ready because like you said you can't escape technology whether you're in new york city or nairobi ai is right. going to come and it's going to disrupt everybody regardless of where you're working so it's not no a matter question. of it's not a matter of who's the cheapest person i can get anymore it's, it's as long as i can afford the technology i don't need to hire people Right, exactly. But you're always going to have. So here's the perfect example. We lose 10,000 jobs a day to technology and that is going to only explode. Uh, but, but here's here's a fact. Um, you know, it used to be that you could go to a gas station and learn how to take care of a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was your that was your career path. You know, that you'd become a mechanic today. A car is a highly sophisticated a technological machine. So for you to you to fix a BMW or a Ford Focus or you know an Opal or whatever anybody drives, you've got to be a technolo- technical expert. Mm-hmm. And this is what's going to forge the new jobs of the future. I'm frankly I'm sick and tired of listening to to you know we got to bring coal jobs back. Uh, they're never coming back. Yeah. Why do we want people working in crummy jobs who get sick? and not get paid very much that are highly dangerous when a machine can do it just as well. We want people working in good jobs, you know, that are advancing innovation and, and, and technology. And the way this is done, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of change. Corporations have to step up. Corporations have to make public private partnerships. They've got to get stronger alliances with schools uh, so that kids, even as young as grammar school, are getting to see how work is done, learning STEM, learning math, using technology, increasingly getting tech, uh, comfortable with it, doing projects. So there's got to be that apprenticeship, public-private partnerships, internships, etc. Now, we used to have that. This is not new, mm-hmm. but now you need it more than ever. It's a must. There's got to be ways through nano degrees and nano education where people can learn um, certain types of jobs, certain technologies, certain new approaches, um, and they can learn them quickly through MOOCs and and other arrangements. Um, I think technical schools are going to be very important. We are never going to be out without, in the near future that I can tell, without people that need services hmm. like people who could do plumbing people who can uh are can do electrical work in a house who 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 can really support these highly sophisticated um tools and processes that people have every day in their homes hmm. um and that's not easy to find by the way i don't know how it is where in uh where you live in the u.s um but where i am it's 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 pretty hard no. and we have to really start educating people around the soft skills. The soft skills are going to make the difference. If you are a curious learner and if you are someone who can empathize with other people, if you are someone who can really collaborate, you will learn constantly and you will have the skills to compete going forward. But if you don't educate yourself, by that I mean open yourself up to always being curious and learning, you're not going to survive in this next century. And the truth of the matter is, and you know, the examples are in our own U.S. coal mines. Uh, we had uh, people come in with uh, apprenticeships and to teach people new jobs to get them out of the coal mines. And there were a whole bunch of people that said, wait, I'm 50 years old. I can't learn anything else. This is all I've done in my life. And when they lost their job, they went and worked in the 7-Eleven. And now 7-Elevens are hiring robots to do things, and now they're finding themselves 
out in the dark. So if you don't want to change and you don't want to learn, you're, you're going to lose. It's mm. that simple. Mm. And it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that soft skills are going to be huge going forward because looking back, people always put down soft skills. I'm trained in finance. I have my degrees in yep. finance and I worked in investment banking and consulting. And in business school, people look down on those that were, you know, learning soft yeah. skills, doing communications or marketing, thinking that those are not important or even guys that right. studied HR. And now you're telling me that, you know what? EQ is going to be big. Communication is going to be big. Being able to empathize and relate with um, your coworker, whether he's from New York City or, like I said earlier, from Nepal or Nairobi, is going to be right. huge because technology yeah. is going to change the way we're all going to work. So we have to focus on the basics, which is soft the soft skills that we're all supposed to learn at grade school or elementary school or yeah. whatever, which is which is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, you know, we don't teach it as well in, in the grade schools as we should. And, you know, it's, it's got to prevail at, at every level of our, our education, because if someone is not a collaborative, they're not going to make it when they have to. And, you know, I have another book, Winning with Transglobal Leadership, which is and actually I touch on it in the Future Proof Workplace. But one of the five researched and directly linked to business outcomes that global leaders need to have. And, you know, command and control is dead. One of them is a huge degree to have a perceptive responsiveness, which was our way of saying, you know, being able to empathize, understand how other people do things, uh, not insist on doing things the way you do them and being really more about the people and less about yourself. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, those are tough things. Uh, it's easy for people to learn finance, not to say, I mean, I know you have education <laughs> and I learned my field too. And I didn't think it was so easy and I appreciate that. But, you know, that, that it, it, it is being able to relate to people mm -hmm. and respecting people that's going to make all the difference in the world. And I, I we think my co-author, Morag Barrett and myself, I mean, this is a human revolution. Yeah. People are going to be rethinking every day how they interact with work and what work means for them and what purpose means for them and what their relationship with others is. And I say it's more humanistic than it's ever been before. And when you say more humanistic now, we'll transition into the diversity aspect that you mentioned in terms of going beyond skin color, going beyond gender, going beyond um, nationality, origin. You're talking about diversity of thinking, diversity of personalities, di diversity of even um, ways of doing things and processes. Right. How can CEOs, managers, directors, board members start preparing and elevating people to take up leadership roles that will drive changes in terms of revolutionary revolutionizing the way diversity is seen across uh, companies yeah that's a great question and i do a lot around this i think this is really important um you know whether you like it or not we've in the u.s and and uh, many other parts of the world you know i was always in global companies people looked at uh, you know, getting women further up the food chain, getting people of color for, for further up the food chain and lots of policies and training and all this stuff have been put into place. And yeah, there's been an improvement, definitely been an improvement. I mean, I'm thankful for where I am because people help me out, but not nearly what it should be. There's only 5% of the CEOs in the U S are, are women and less are, are people of color. And you know, it's, it's, so what we're doing is not working. And my perspective is, and my research tells me, because we're tackling the wrong end of the picture. We're tackling, we now know a lot about the brain, and we know that people's brain is shaped in a context. And there's a lot of stereotypes and unconscious bias that's going on. And it's not because people are bad or good or whatever. It's because that's what they've, been taught over the years. That's what they've heard. That's what they've experienced. That's what they've seen. And I think we have to do two things and they're not expensive. The first is I go back to the values. 
every CEO needs to sit down with people in their organization and have a discussion about the values and what they mean to that individual. And you know what they're going to find out? They're going to find out that they have a lot more in common with folks than they realize. Mm. But usually CEOs don't have those kind of conversations. They have the conversations about the numbers. They have a conversation about the goals. They have a conversation about the economic environment. You're a finance guy. You worked on Wall Street. You know, all those typical things. How many CEOs and leaders have you known that actually sat down with people who are different from them and said, let's talk about these values. What do they mean to you? How do you live them? Zero. Not and all one. of a sudden, not one. And all of a sudden, and you, that this does not cost money. This is time. That's it. Well, time is money also. But, but cut out all the expensive training programs. Have sessions where you're with people who are different. Look at your network. How are, is everybody in your network, your social network, both in work and out of work? Are they mini me's or are they really different? And have you taken the time to really learn what the common connection between yourself and other people? That's, that's a soft skill and that's going to make a huge difference. The second thing is looking at the stereotype boost. You know, you know, I'm sure, Chi, you've been told great things about yourself on one level and some things about yourself that are not so hot mm -hmm. by your family, by, you know, your culture, whatever. I know I have. And um, some of these deep-seated stereotypes are getting in the way of allowing a person to be inclusive and or allowing an individual to get ahead. And so we do a, a circle of trust exercise, which is very, very powerful. And we start looking at, you know, who people trust and why. And then we look at, you know, what are the stereotypes that you've been brought up with? And again, it's not judgmental. The second you make it judgmental, you've lost. Because everybody has them, no matter who you are. Yeah. And, you know, what are the stereotypes that you have? What are the ones that have helped you? Because stereotypes come about... For the 40 million or a thousand years that humans have been here because they've learned things. Don't trust that one over there. They're going to kill you. It's a bad tribe coming over the hill. You know, all of these things, uh, but, you know, that may not relate anymore, but do shape the brain. Hmm. And putting those stereotypes down and saying, which are the ones that, you know, help me and help us or which are the ones that are getting in the way? of uh, us being inclusive, creating a place where people feel that they can belong. And belonging is becoming a much bigger word for me. You know, it's one thing to be inclusive. It's another thing to make people feel like, well, I really do belong here. I'm part of the fabric of this company or I'm part of the fabric of this organization. Once they feel belong, like they belong, and once others believe they belong, there is no difference regardless of your skin color, your religion, uh, your social attributes, whatever it is. It's getting to that place of belonging. And I think we have to peel back that onion to get to those unconscious biases that um, have kept us apart. Do I have time to tell you a quick story? Of course, yes, please. So do you know that woman, um, she's from Pakistan. I forget her name. I should know her name and I could look it up, but I don't have time. I was just at a global women's conference Malala? in uh, yes in um, in um, Berlin, and she was the opening speaker. You know, she was barred from no, I don't think, but she was barred from coming to the U.S. because she's a Muslim, and we just put the Muslim ban in the thing. Mm -hmm. And she was getting an Academy Award for a documentary that she did on women and discrimination of women. Um, that's who I'm talking about. She's she's very well known, wonderful woman, and she interviewed all these people men and women, and you started to hear how these men were brought up and their attitudes towards women. And it wasn't that they were bad people, but that is what they believed. And that is, you know, centuries of unconscious uh, context that's mm. been driven into their brain. And it was just such an eye-opener to see this. And that's what needs to change. We have to have real conversations about those kinds of things. And my next question is going to be centered around um, 
something that I got from your office in terms of there's a surprising industry that is least prepared to meet the onslaught of the future-proof workplace. What industry is that and why is the industry as a whole not prepared for the nature of the change that's coming along? Well, I think there's two industries. I think that one is the uh, automotive industry, which frankly, you know, I don't know how many cars you have. I have I have three, and I'm now down to two, thank goodness. <laughs> but most people who have cars, those cars are only used about 20% of the time. Okay. And, um, you know, what you're going to see is that whole um, – shared economy around cars, which is going to mean we're going to need a lot less of them going forward, which is going to change in a large part how we do insurance around the world, um, how we look at um, all of those kinds of things, because people are not going to need car insurance like they needed before. They're not going to need cars like they needed before because there'll be a kiosk somewhere and Mm -hmm. they, you know, they put a so a credit card in and they take the car for what they needed and they, they drop it off. That's going to dramatically change the number of cars that are going to be needed. It's also going to have a huge impact on the environment um, as, as, as we go forward and on our need for um, more roads and all of those kinds of things. So that's, that's one that I think is going to be really uh, impacted considerably going forward. And especially with the rise of um, the Tesla, Elon Musk, and self-driving vehicles, right. people will find themselves not needing to to live closer to the cities. They can live as far as they want. And once you have a self-driving car, you just order the car. The car comes, picks you, takes you to work. Right. You can sleep, do your work in the right. back seat, and the car will be driving. And right. you'll be good to go and just order a car to come pick you, and you go back to where you're coming from. Right. Right, and the car comes, picks you up, and then it probably stops and takes someone somewhere else mm-hmm. after it drops you off wherever it, it needs to go. So that whole image is um, is 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 really going to change. You know, a lot of people said uh, that the landline, the telephone, was never ever going to go away, and um, you know, didn't invest in um, smartphones and the cell phones and all of that stuff, and you know, who's putting a landline in their house anymore? I don't know. I mean, I have one, but I don't know why I have one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because it comes with the cable bill, and they say it's cheaper exactly. to have cable, phone, and all that stuff rolled That's exactly, into one. <laughs> you're exactly right, Chi. That is exactly right why I have one, and I'm getting ready to rip it out because all I get is, uh, um, you know, robocalls on, the, on, the, on that thing. It's driving me crazy. But so... Yeah. So as we start to wind down, Linda, I have some wrapping up questions for you. So what can companies do to start preparing themselves? What can young people, millennials that are young in their careers or even transitioning from corporate to self-employment start to do to prepare themselves for the future of work? Because this moves beyond just workplace where you're going to a physical office in the morning. You may be working from home. You may work at whatever time you want to work. So how can people start right. getting ready? I think one of the things is get some real honest feedback on your soft skills. You know, how do people see, do people see you as collaborative? Do people see you as a learner? Um, do people see you as respectful? Um, and get some, you know, pick four or five, three or four things. And there's a lot of instruments out there that can help you. And you don't, you don't need to, you know, go to a, a big glossy school to get this and then get some suggestions on how you could be better on the one or two areas that maybe, you know, you're not so good on. And let me be honest, we're all not so good on some of that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and start working on that so that you can be somebody that others want to work with and others want to engage with, whether you're a Uber driver, uh, a gig economy individual, uh, a Fiverr freelancer, um, or you're starting your own business, or you're starting a consortium, or you're working in a in a startup or other companies. 
That is one thing and piece of advice I would give to every millennial. The other thing I would piece of advice that I would say is work at your purpose. Be very clear on what your purpose is. What makes you hum? You know, is it pure water uh, for everybody who lives in the planet? Is it, um, you know, great technological advances in medicine? What is it? And what, what, what makes you hum? And work on that. However, you can do that. Get involved with other people who are like that. Um, go to sessions. Learn about what people are doing in those fields and educate yourself about that. So those are my two big pieces of advice. I, I guess wait, there would be a third. Get the soft skills. Be clear on what that is. Uh, work at your passion. Find out. Really dig deep. If you're going after a job for money, you're lost. Mm -hmm. Go after a career that's really related to what you love. And the third is be very clear on your own personal values. You know, I mean, are you going to work for somebody who's uh, um, a toxic leader mm. who treats people badly just because you can have a particular job or you can get a check? My answer to that would be no. I, I wouldn't do that. I have at certain times in my life, and I paid for it. I'm yeah. sorry that I did. But, you know, what are your values and what's the threshold you will not cross? Mm -hmm. And be clear on that. And in terms of education and actually taking that first step, I know, uh, I think I read something somewhere that you said even traditional education has to be rethought because going to get a four-year degree was basically preparing you for the industrial jobs of yesteryear. Right. And now that things right. have changed, we need to start thinking of things like nano degrees and just-in-time learning. Right. So what yep. what's your advice for people in terms of, you know, coming out of high school or, you know, your parents investing money tuition for four years only to find out that, you know what, in the next five years, what I studied in college might not be relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the education field is really in flux. And I think it's uh, the, the, the need to spend fortunes on uh, education is is really bogus. And you know what? It drives a real have and have not society, which, you know, I think is a real challenge. My, my view is, is to be very careful. I, I don't think a college education is going to be going away anytime soon. I think education is the key to everything, but how you get that education is, is really important. Um, you need to go to a school that does, like you said, you went and got your finance degree and it didn't talk at all about the soft skills. It didn't, you know, you need to go to schools where you'll be, you know, working in industry while you're getting experience. You'll be working uh, with a startup and you'll be getting credits for that. There's not got to be a much more blending between community, business and schools and, uh, you know, really teaching people how to be creative thinkers problem solvers mm. and curious learners. That's what's really important. So it almost doesn't matter what the project is that you're working on. It's that it has a significance. Um, it's not a matter of memorizing and taking tests. It's a matter of really stretching yourself and learning and being outside your comfort zone. And that's where schools are not, um, they're not living up to the 21st century requirements and demands. And they got to change in that regard. Yes, and I like the fact that you said you have to actually start thinking about these things, even if it means getting some type of internship credit, working with a startup while you're going to college, so that you get those hard skills and those soft skills simultaneously, instead of of trying to build it out later. Like for me, for example, I I was only trained in the numbers, the numbers, the numbers, and now I do podcasts and I interview people, and I never really took that many communications classes. But I find myself enjoying it, so I try to read up and I try to learn and I try to take courses yeah. to build that skill set because you find that you never know just where you might end up after a couple right. years of doing whatever it is you're doing. I totally, I totally agree with you, Chi. And by the way, you're doing a great job. <laughs> but, you know, that's true. Thank See, that's, that's a lifelong learner. You know, that's that's not somebody who says gets out of college and, you know, okay, now what are you going to do for me? I now have a college degree. College is supposed to teach you how to think, mm -hmm. you know, how to how to be creative, how to be engaged, how to be involved, you know, how to make a difference. 
And it's only it's only the entry level ticket, frankly. Um, and I'm not sure that it has to be a four year college degree to give you that entry level ticket. But you've got to be a curious learner. You've got to understand that learning is something you will do for your entire life. Great. And with that, Linda, thanks for coming on the show. So why can people learn more about you? find the book and um hopefully get in touch with you are you active on social media facebook twitter yeah what's your thing i'm i'm actually active on social media on facebook twitter linkedin you just told me that uh i need my, my my site is not working as well i do have a website we also have a site for the book where you can get a hold of me which is uh www.futureproofworkplace.com and anybody can email me at Linda at Linda Sharkey. That's S H A R K E Y dot com. And um, I welcome people reaching out. I love talking about this, as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. Yeah. And that is my purpose: creating great organizations. Great, and I'll link to everything you just mentioned in the show notes uh, okay. on the website. And with that said, any final words of wisdom for people listening out there? Well, my final word of wisdom is embrace the future. It can be an exciting ride. Great. So, Linda, it's been a pleasure spending the last, uh, I thought we were going to go for 30-something minutes, but it's right on the edge of one hour. So thanks for coming for the hour to share with us a little bit about what you do and how to get ready for the future of work. And the book is obviously titled The Future Proof Workplace. Please you can find it on Amazon. It's really good. I'm not going to order a copy and read it and then um tell you what I think. Oh good. I would love to I would love to hear that. You can also get it through our website, which is the www.futureproofworkplace.com website and it's discounted. So I oh, just great. thought I'd mention it. <laughs> oh great. Thanks a lot, Linda. I appreciate that. Okay. Well thank you, Chi. It's been a pleasure working with you and it was a, a great interview. Thanks for tuning in to listen to today's episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. As always, you can find more episodes and more information about the show that you just listened on our website, odogwu.com. And whatever you're doing, I hope you have a profitable and pleasurable day. Cheers, guys. Bye. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.